You're listening to a sermon from Lakeview Baptist Church. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at 6 o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. You have your Bible open uh, to the latter part of your Bible to the book of 1 John chapter 3. And uh, we're going to turn our attention to a great passage from 1 John chapter 3. Again, if you're new to Lakeview, I am not Pastor Brian. So please don't leave. Uh, my name is Kevin Webb, and I'm, the, I'm one of the associate pastors here. I, I have oversight of our college ministry, but I'm grateful to have this opportunity while Brian is away. If you have been able to be here, you know that on Sunday mornings, Brian has been preaching through the gospel of John, and it has been a very uh, fruitful and really, really good series for me personally, and I know for you as well. Uh, and so as I thought about what to share this morning, I didn't want to just step on, on his ground and, and do the next passage. I'm going to leave that for him. But I also didn't want to go far afield from what we've been talking about uh, in that series. So I thought we might think of a passage at least from the same author, the, the, the Apostle John, and, and maybe a passage that involves some themes that we've been seeing in his gospel. So we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to uh, look at the first three verses and think about what I'm calling the enduring love of God. This is a very encouraging passage, and it is one that I hope that you will leave here today. I don't know what you came, what intention you came with, but I hope when you leave, you'll leave more sure of the love of Christ for you and more aware of and more confident in the hope that you have in him. So let's, let's read our passage, and then I'll lay out what I think we can see in it before we dive into it. So if you found 1 John chapter 3, follow along as I read verses 1 to 3. It's not very long. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we confess our faith that this is your holy, inspired inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, as we come to it, we come in submission to it, would you please give us eyes to see the truth in these words? Would you give us minds to understand it very clearly? Would you give us hearts to embrace and recognize its eternal importance? Would you give us wills then to uh, act on and obey whatever this passage is, is going to admonish us to do? Would you give me the help that I need to teach? Would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is such a beautiful and rich passage. If you're, if you're taking notes, and I know uh, BPs, MVPs, you may be taking notes this morning. So here's what, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I, what I think we're going to see here, and then we'll go back to the beginning and try to see it. 
So I, I believe that, that what, we, what we read here is John teaching us about the, the, the love of Christ, love of God in Christ for each of us. And I, and I think he unfolds it and we see it manifested in, in four different ways in these three short verses. And the first is going to be what I'll call our possession. We see it in our possession. That's what, that's what John is going to describe in the first part of verse 1, our possession of the love of God in Christ. Then second, we're going to see, we're going to consider our position, uh, which John is describing at the end of verse 1 and in the end of the first part of verse 2. He's going to describe there the, the position in which we find ourselves as believers in the world. That's one of his favorite uh, words to use. It's a word John uses almost more than any other. He'll, and he's going to show us in that part of the passage that, that believers find ourselves in the world in a position of, yes, hardship, but also one of hope. Third, we're, we're going to continue to see the love of God come to full fruition for us uh, in, at the end of verse 2 with our perfection. At the end of verse 2. It's one of the most beautiful promises to believers in the New Testament right there at the end of verse 2. And then finally, in verse 3, John's going to end with an admonition to us describing what ought to be our progression, our progression between now and that future day, right? John in this passage is going to take us from uh, who believers are in Christ now, uh, the hope that believers have in the midst of hardship now, the glory that believers will one day experience when Christ returns, and how that ought to affect how we live and walk with him until that day. That's what I believe John is going to emphasize here, and so it's what we need to emphasize. So that said, let's dive in and take a closer look, thinking first about our possession Again, I believe this is what John is describing in the first part of verse 1. So look at that again with me. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. There, there is so much to see just in that. But there are two words or phrases that just jump out at me with that when, when, I, when I look at this. And it's, it, and it's what kind and we. That, that's what jumps out at me when I read that portion of the verse. And one impacts the other. John is pointing out that, that we are recipients of this love from God. And, and if, if we are recipients of this love of God, what kind of love must this be? It's the same kind of of wonder that John that John expresses here is the same kind of wonder that Paul expresses, for example, in Romans five when he said in Romans five seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. And then he sort of this sort of back, he's sort of backtracking there he, he, a bit when he gives that human example. He says he says that a person a person would scarcely die for a for a righteous person. He backtracks a little bit. He says well. Well, maybe for a good person, someone would dare to die. But then he turns that to amazement when Paul says, but God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul, Paul in Romans 5 is like marveling at the fact that, that God demonstrated love to, to sinners. And that's, a, that's, that's now kind of a churchy word, but just... What is, what is a sinner? I mean, sinners are so, are so precisely because 
They reject God. That's what a sinner is. Someone who, who, who rejects God and refuses to walk in obedience to him. That's the comparison Paul sets up in Romans 5. Yeah, a man might die for a, a good man, but God did not wait for us to be good. He loved us even when we were sinners against himself. And this is John marveling at the same thing. It, almost, you can almost feel it as he's writing it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, of all people, that we should be called children of God. That, that requires a sober and an honest look at yourself. If, if we're ever going to feel the wonder that John is writing with right there, that, that, that we, that I, I mean, I know myself. Like, I know myself, I know my sins, I know my struggles, I know my weaknesses, I know what I deserve. And, it's, and it doesn't just take a clear-eyed view of ourselves, but it requires a clear-eyed understanding of God, too. See what kind of love the Father has given. It made me think back to an Old Testament passage. It won't be on the screen, but just, just listen. It, it, it's a prophecy in Ezekiel 36. It's a, it's a promise in Ezekiel 36 about the coming new covenant, the coming salvation that God was about to work in Christ. And in, in Ezekiel 36, God tells the reason that he's about to do this saving work. And, and in verses 22 and 23, this is what he says, it is not for your sake. <laughs> I mean, that's the first words. It's like, wow, it is not for your sake that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. And he says, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What do you expect would come after a statement like that? When God there is repeatedly described as holy and we are repeatedly described as the ones who have profaned his holiness. When you put those two things together, that God is holy, that we profane his holiness by our proud rebellion against him, and that God promises to vindicate his holiness, that is, God will leave no question about his holiness what do you think would come next? Wrath? Judgment? Rightly so. But what does come next in Ezekiel 36? A promise of mercy. A promise of forgiveness and of salvation. To take a, to take a sinful people, move them by the gift of his Holy Spirit to recognize and to sorrow over their sin and rebellion and save them as trophies of his grace. God shows to sinners who profane his name love. And that will in turn cause us to do exactly what John does here at the beginning of verse 1, and that is to wonder what kind of love is this? Well, 
not only from, from this verse, but from other places within this very letter, there are a number of things you could say about what kind of love this is. One of the things that you have to admit about this love is that it, it has to be absolutely free because we have already sung about this in the morning. I have, I, we have nothing to offer to him to deserve this love. It has to be free if we have it at all. And you get a strong, you get that strong hint of that truth in that verse that, that we, that we should be called children of God. What do we deserve to do that? Deserve that, do to deserve that? Nothing. But it's spelled out very clearly, for example, in chapter 4. If you can look at chapter 4, verse 10, where we read later in this letter, he says, in this is love. And then he comments, like, let's get this straight. Not that we have loved God. We didn't. But that he loved us. And that, that, ver- that, that part of the verse just shows that, that while it's free to us, it, it's going to give a second characteristic, verse 10 of chapter 4 does, that it's also just. It's free to us, but it's costly to God. Because he says, he loved us, even when we didn't love him, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is how God in Ezekiel 36 would say, I will vindicate my holiness, and it still be followed by a promise of salvation. God, the very sinners who have profaned his name, who deserved judgment, not mercy. God could be just to love those very sinners because he himself would come in the Son, Jesus Christ, to bear in himself his own wrath against our sin. Going back to chapter 1, that's why in chapter 1, verse 9, John says that when we confess our sins to him, he, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is just to forgive us. How? Because of his son. That leads us to another kind of love we're talking about. What kind of love is this? If you go back to chapter 3, our main passage, it's, it, is, it is secure. It is enduring. It's not a temporary, it's not a momentary love. It's an enduring love. Look again at chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. The word that Paul used there for has given indicates that it is, it is something that he gave and it will remain. He gave and he's not taking it back. He's, he gave it and it's there forever. And notice that he, he says, he, he, he emphasizes that even more, the security of this love, when he says that we should be called children of God, and it's not a period, there's more, and so we are. We are. If you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. And that is an adoption that cannot be undone. Jesus said, if you, he told earthly fathers, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father in heaven who know how to give good gifts to his children? I mean, what kind of love is it? It's, it's free, it's unmerited, it's just, it's righteous, and it's enduring and it's secure. There is so much more we could say on this point, but for the sake of time, we need to, we need to just leave it at this. But we've, we've seen enough already in just this, to appreciate what John is saying here. The the first word of this verse is 
see. Behold it. Look at it. It's a command, actually. It's, it's an imperative. Look at it. That's what he's saying. John is not just describing the enduring love of God for our information. He's saying, look at it. Look at how God has loved us of all people in Jesus Christ. It is that sentiment right there why I think that the NIV uses the word lavished here. Right? See what great love the Father has lavished on us. I mean, the word just means given. This, look, at the, look at what he gave to us. But when you understand what kind of love that he's talking about here, it feels like he's lavished us with something. For every repentant sinner who's put their hope and trust in Christ, you are a possessor of the free, righteous, secure love of God in Christ. That we, sinners that we are, should be called children of God, and so we are. But as the passage continues, John, John doesn't just make clear our possession, but also how the love of God impacts our position. And let me try to explain what I mean by that, our, our position. Look with me at the end of verse 1 and the start of verse 2. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and that's just reaffirming what he just said, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Well, let's think about what John is saying there. He begins with the statement that the world does not know us. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What does that mean? Well, the world, I already indicated this, the world, world is one of John's favorite words. John, just in this short letter, John uses the word world 23 times. He'll use it over 100 times in all of his New Testament writings. And he uses the word world in all sorts of ways. He can use it to talk about this physical earth where we live on. He talked about, he's talking about the world in the sense of all, every person in the world. He can, he can talk about the world of just all the believers across the world. He can talk about all the unbelievers across the world. He can talk, use world to talk about this, the, evil, the evil sort of system of the world that works against Christ and Christianity. All kinds of ways. And it appears that he's using that here to refer to that last kind of thing, that not just unbelievers, but this, this whole system of the world that is opposed to Christ and Christianity. And I say that because he's saying that the world here doesn't know us. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's opposed to Christians and Christianity, just as it was opposed to Christ in his life, and it cost him his life. It didn't know him first. When John says... The world doesn't know us. He's referring, I believe, to the, to the doubt and the disbelief and the discrimination that, that the world has toward Christians and the Christian faith, toward what we claim is true. And they don't believe the, the, the love of God that we have received, that we are children of God. John says we are children now, but we know that now is also marked by hardship because this is where we live. Christians ought not expect favor from the world. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have trouble. John says, the world doesn't know us. But John is here to remind us that as true as that is, we are children of God in the midst of it. That is certain. He says that at the beginning of verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And he's going to show that, that the love of God by which we are children in Christ, it gives us a hope that surpasses all hardship. It was when I was thinking about this particular point, it reminded me of part of a letter 
college students, if you were here last week, you're just going to hear this again. It was, it was part of a, an old letter that I, that I read to the college students last week uh, in what we were talking about. It was written uh, in the third century, the 200s, by Cyprian. And he's writing to a man named Donatus. Again, just listen very, listen, it's not on the screen, I apologize, but listen to the, what he wrote. I'm not, not along, but this is what Cyprian said. He said, this seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. In other words, he's sitting under the shade tree on a, on a, on a palmy, sunny day, maybe uh, has a glass of lemonade in his hand, and it says, from this vantage point, the world looks pretty good. But he says, but if I climbed to some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Thieves on the high road, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters men murdered to please the appalling crowds, under all roofs misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. Where does that come from? That, that, that joy that is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. And that really does rise above and outlast the hardships and the difficulties of life. Where does that come from? It comes from what John is talking about right here. Notice the progression of thought from the end of verse 1 to the start of verse 2. Now right in the middle of that is that reassertion that we are God's children now. But verse 1, the end of verse 1 says that we're living in a world that doesn't know us. And then the end of verse 2, he adds this point. What we will be has not yet appeared. Now, we'll get to what that is in a minute. But for right now, just let those words now and not yet sink in. We're God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. There, there's more than a now for the Christian. There's a not yet. We, we live in a, in a tension. It's what I felt yesterday watching college football. College football was on, on the television yesterday. But it was week zero no, none of the games were good. They were all terrible games. But it was college football. But it's almost like this is what we have now. But there's a not yet. Next week's coming. You know? <laughs> we, 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 we live in a, in, a, in a tension, but one that's headed in the right direction for us. We have been lavished with the love of God in Christ Jesus. And our position is always a position of hope even in the midst of hardship. It's a hope, the glory of which I'm convinced that none of us fully yet understand. For good reason, it hasn't been revealed to us yet. But the, the Apostle Paul got a glimpse of it, and he, he, he peppered into his writings this little statements here and there that get kind of just whet your appetite. For example, when in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider that the, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. It's just not, it's not even worth comparing. And my favorite is 2 Corinthians 4, 17. This slight 
momentary affliction. Now, if you're going through anything that you could realistically call affliction, I'd be willing to bet that it doesn't to you feel slight or momentary. But Paul says this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. In our passage, John tries to give us a glimpse as to why the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with it because we are, we are in possession of this enduring love of God in Christ by his mercy. And, our, and so our position, despite hardship, is one of hope, hope in a future that will be marked by our perfection. That's the third point. So think about that with me quickly. This is what John is describing at the end of verse 2. He's just finished saying, what we will be has not yet been revealed. And then he adds what is to come. He says, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the part that none of us fully yet understand for the reason that John says it hasn't been revealed to us yet. When will it be revealed to us? When he appears, when Christ returns. Here's what I want to zoom in on right here, though. John says, we know. We know. The Christian faith is not one of unsteady, tenuous wishing. It's knowledge. it's, It's knowledge. We know it to be true. In the very next verse, verse 3, he's going to talk about the Christian hope. But that's nothing different than what he's talking about in verse 2. It's what we know. The Christian hope isn't a wish. It's a knowledge of a reality we're looking forward to. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great British pastor in the middle of the last century in London. And uh, this is, this is what, the way he talks about the second coming of Christ. He says, the second coming, it is part of the Christian's belief. It is It is as much a part of their belief as their forgiveness of sins by the work of Christ on the cross. It will be manifested for certain, and so they are full of confidence and assurance. Your glorification and mine is an absolute certainty. As certainly as our Lord entered into his glory, you and I, who are children of God, shall enter it also. As surely as he entered into his glory... If you are in in him by repentance and faith, you too will go. Why? Because the moment you repented and believed, you are united to Christ. Where he goes, you go. And if he went, you'll go. Now, what does John say that we'll know? Not just that Jesus will return, but that also for those who are his children through repentance and faith in Christ, he says, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. What what does he mean that we will be like him? Well, there are obvious ways in which we won't ever be like him, right? He will forever, for all eternity, be the God-man. He he is uh, truly God, truly man, uh, two natures in one person. Never will be true of us. But verse 3 also kind of gives us a clear hint of the kind of way that we will be like him. When, if you look at verse 3 just quickly, it uses that language of purity, 
right? And that is the likeness of Jesus we will have. We will be like him in terms of moral purity in us and around us. That, that's the likeness that Jesus will have, freedom from sin. Not just the consequences, but free from sin itself, its influences. Free from every sinful impulse to sin, every action of sin, every effect of sin around us. That's the perfection we will know. Because we will see him as he is. That's what theologians throughout the history of the church have called the beatific vision. The blessed vision of God in his glory. That's what the apostle Paul is describing when he says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. I, I heard about a baby nursery one time that, in a church that had that verse on a picture in the nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's just a funny and clever, maybe just a wee bit out of context. It's, it's, it's hard for us to even imagine that day. I mean, our, our imaginations run up against a limit. But I, but I say the weakness of our imaginations the inadequacies of our imaginations should not lessen or weaken the certainty of our anticipation of that day. As we noted earlier, Paul says it's not worth comparing to the sufferings we know now. It'll be a glory beyond all comparison. Well, we've seen, that, we've seen John show us how believers are in free possession of the love of God in Christ. And that places us in this life in a position of hope even amidst hardship looking forward to the perfection we will see and know when Christ returns. But John ends this passage really with an admonition from the love of God that we have received. Having taken us from the moment of first faith in verse 1 to the eternal future of perfection in verse 2, John comes back to the present time in verse 3 to admonish us concerning our progression on the path from today until that coming day. So think with me about our progression finally. Paul says in verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That is John actually coming back to something he was emphasizing just a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 2. Look, look for example back at chapter 2 verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He's not right there. He's not warning that genuine believers might actually be finally lost in that day. He doesn't say, so that you might not shrink from him in condemnation. He's warning believers against growing lax in our pursuit of holiness in Christ until then, so that we don't feel shame on that day when he returns, a day and a time we know not what. Again, John is not admonishing us to pursue purity and purify ourselves as a means of hoping maybe we might be saved at the end. Scripture always, always, always bases our pursuit of obedience on the grace and promise of God already given to us. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Yeah. 
And John here says, everyone who hopes thus in him. Everyone who hopes like this in him. Hopes like what? Meaning trusting knowingly, confidently in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ for us in his appearing to come and, 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 know, and believe that when we see him, we will be like him. All the stuff that he's just said, everyone who hopes in that way in him, knowingly and confidently, which can and should be every believer's hope, John says it ought to spur us on to holiness and obedience now. Getting ready for that day. In the passage that we in the college ministry looked at, uh, just an hour before this, we're, we're, we're studying through Philippians. And Philippians 1.11 talks about on that day, we want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's like, it's like heavy fruit hanging on a tree of our life, right? And we do that not out of guilt or not out of debt, but out of gratitude and out of anticipation. I want to be ready for that day. Knowing the knowing the pardon already granted to us in Christ and the perfection promised and awaiting, our pursuit now should, should be for increasing purity of life that we might walk seamlessly into that day. Our daily prayer, I think, should be like that of the great reformer Martin Bucer of the 16th century. Listen to this prayer. It may sound familiar to some of you guys. This should be a daily prayer of ours. Almighty, everlasting God and Father. We acknowledge and confess that we indeed were conceived and born in sin and therefore inclined to all evil and slow to all good that we unceasingly transgress your holy commandments and corrupt ourselves more and more. But we are sorry for this and desire your grace and help. Therefore, have mercy upon us, most gracious and merciful God and Father. Through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, grant to us and increase in us your Holy Spirit. Why? Why is he praying this? So that we may recognize our sin and unrighteousness and from the depth of our heart feel true contrition and grief for them. Die to them completely and please you wholly in a new godly life. That is what John is admonishing us to aim at until he comes again. Well, as Adam and the musicians come forward, this is a, this is a passage, this is a passage that should be, this is a passage that for believers should be very encouraging. It, it should be encouraging that, that you are, through, through your repentance and faith in Christ, that you are recipients uh, unwaveringly so, recipients of, of this love of Christ, this love of God that carries on to eternity. But you ought to hear what... John did not write this. We didn't stop at verse 2. We, we, if, he, if it was just 1 and 2, it, it could have been interpreted as, this is just something I want you to know. But we read till verse 3, which carries this sense. Here's what I want you to know. And here's what I want you to do because of it, right? It's an admonition. Hope in him, but let that trickle down into your motivation to, to walk in purity and increasing purity until that day. I want you, believer, to hear that admonition. And you know your own heart. God knows your own heart. 
So in a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And, I, and, and as we sing, that this is your opportunity to speak to God in your own heart about the, of the purity of your own life and the things that you need to repent of, the things that you need accountability for, to walk, to help each other walk in purity of life till that day. But if you're an unbeliever in this room, that's not the admonition you need. Don't hear it. Don't hear it. Verse 3 is your admonition. Well, I need to clean myself up before I can come to Christ. That's not. Verse 1 is for you. Look at, look at what kind of love the Father has given to you. That in Christ, you can be a child of God. And if you want to know how you can put your faith in Jesus Christ and know that you're a child of God... In a minute, we're going to stand and sing and have pastors along every aisle, and you can come and just talk to one of us, and you could be saved today. Whatever it is that you need to do, now is the time to do it. Every time we hear the Word of God, we, we feel the sense that we ought to do something with it, and we don't do it. A, a callus builds up on our heart, and we don't hear the voice of God as strongly the next time. So as we stand and sing, you come. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.